Happy New Year! I hope you had a good Christmas. Did you have a good Christmas? How many got something for Christmas that you really wanted? How many of you got something for Christmas that you're just really not sure what to do with? I bet we could have a great time discussing those. You know, in reality, everything you got for Christmas is in the long-term process of becoming useless garbage. Did you know that? This is, this is life. You know, you, you get this Christmas gift and, and you put it on the table and you open it up and it's in your living space and it's the coolest thing. You fill out the registration card and you join the club. And then a few days later you realize, I'm probably not going to drive fruit and I don't have a basement. I'm not going to bake bread three times a day. Now I've got this thing and what am I going to do with it? We be, it begins to be part of the process of the trashification of everything in your house. Your house is a processing center for trashification. Did you know that? And if you don't know what to do with a gift, then, then you find either a closet or a, or a drawer or a cupboard in which we hide all of our mistakes. You know, we take the thing that we're not sure about and we hide it. And it stays in there until such time as then we do what with it. We don't know what else to do with it, so it goes into the garbage. The, not the garbage, it goes into the garage. But did you notice that garbage and garage are just one letter apart? Once your present makes it into the garage, it is never again making it into your living space. It's going to be stuck in the garage unless you, you go to eBay. eBay is, is, a, is a great invention. It, it allows us to mail our, our garbage back and forth to each other for the low, low price of eight bucks. And by the way, you can ignore your family while you're bidding on eBay. I'm up to $8 for this Tahitian doll. What is that? So it sits in your garage, and then maybe you'll have a garage sale, and you'll take your stuff, and you'll put it in, in, in a garage sale, which you ought to do just take it down to the Salvation Army, because you're only going to get you know a dollar on a $100 item in a garage sale. The only other thing you can do if you, if you don't want it to have a garage sale or, or give it away is you take it to your storage unit. Anybody have a storage unit? It's the saddest stage of all for the trashification of your stuff. You know, you, now, instead of having your, your stuff, your garbage, your useless stuff around you for free, you have to pay to go see it. And you go to the storage unit and you, and you unlock the lock and you, you walk down the corridor and it's, it's kind of like going to a prison visit. Have you ever visited anybody in prison and, and you roll up that door and you look at your, at your stuff and you say, I'm sorry guys, I, I'm trying to get you out of here as hard as I can, but there's just no place in the world for you. And then you roll the door uh, back down. In the end, everything is thrown out. You know, even, even we are thrown out. Our bodies are thrown out when we're done with them. You know, Gwen and I have plans to be cremated and our instructions in our will to our kids is we'd like to be cremated but please be kind with the ashes because no telling if you know my kids what they're going to do with the ashes some people when they die they're buried with their stuff and frankly I'm all for that if you got all this stuff take it with you we don't need it here we got too much stuff and so that's your your quest the week after Christmas is what am I going to do with all of my stuff because I'm heading into a new year and I want to be able to survive the new year. Maybe you're going to make a resolution. I mentioned this last time I spoke. If you, 
If you don't have a good New Year's resolution for Bible study, we taught this course here over the summer last year, and it's, it's on my website, it's on the church's website, but on my website we've also incorporated all of the PowerPoints and, and really blown that up a little bit. So maybe if you're looking for a 33-week study on the life of Christ, it's really fun to do. But as you head into the new year, you know, the question is, what are we going to do? What if Christmas hadn't come? We're finishing up this, this What If series, and, and here's the thing I'm here to tell you. Christmas is coming again, and that's pretty cool. Christmas is coming again in 2015, but it might come in its completion before 2015 is over. But I head into this new year with new plans and new goals and new dreams, bringing with me some of the baggage, some of the stuff, some of the trashification from my old life. How can I succeed and really thrive in the new year? And really the title for the message is, How Can I Thrive in 2015? How can I thrive in 2015? Can you imagine it's 2015? Those, those of you who are young, you don't remember this, but I remember when 2000 happened, and the whole world had this thing called Y2K, you remember? And all the computers were going to blow up, and the world was going to end. And then was it 2010 or 2011, the Mayans predicted that the world was going to end? Well, I don't know when the world's going to end, but I know it's going to have a happy ending for me. But in the meantime, what does God want from you and from me as we head into 2015? My favorite New Year in the Bible is in John chapter 13. Jesus has gathered his disciples together to celebrate New Year's Eve. Now, in the Old Testament, it was called the Passover. The Passover was celebrated on New Year's Eve in the Old Testament. And the Passover feast looked back to the time when the Jews were slaves in Egypt, if you watched the Exodus movie that just came out, they did a little bit of a good job with this, not much of one. But they were celebrating the Passover in order to escape from Egypt. God had sent ten plagues into Egypt. Nine of them had defeated the gods of Egypt. And the tenth was the death of the firstborn in every home. And to avoid that, they were to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, and they were to kill it. And they were to spread blood over the doorposts and over the entryway. And then the, the Jewish people, by faith, would, watch this, they would enter into the benefits of the shed blood of the Lamb. That becomes a picture of Jesus. Jesus, in his first Christmas coming, is our Passover Lamb. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrifice for us. Jesus comes as a baby to die for the sins of the world. And it's not enough that he came, and it's not enough that we know that he came, but we have to enter into a relationship with him. We have to enter into the protection of of the shed blood of the Lamb, and then God spares the firstborn, and God spares us from the punishment that we deserve. So Jesus is celebrating that Passover meal with the disciples. It's New Year's Eve. It's kind of New Year's Eve and the 4th of July all rolled up into one if you're Jewish. And he, he does something pretty interesting. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, John 13, 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come forth from God and was going back to God, laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. 
And one of the first things that had to be done at every Passover celebration was a servant or a young child would be assigned to wash everyone's feet. You know, they wore sandals. They wore the equivalent of our flip-flops. And they lived in a dusty, high desert area. And in order to celebrate the feast or to eat in anybody's home, someone would be assigned. It was the lowliest task to wash feet. Well, Jesus does that. Even though he's the host of the Passover, even though he's the fulfillment of the fast Passover feast, he washes his disciples' feet. feet. And then in John chapter 13 and verse 15, he says, For I gave you a what? Say that word. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Now, here's the point. If you're going to thrive in 2015, you need to become a foot washer. That's a picture of a servant. And that's interesting because Jesus, knowing that he was going to die, did this. You know, when someone knows they're going to die, if you knew this was your last Christmas that we just had and that you were going to be dead before next Christmas, how would you live your life differently? Jesus knew it. He knew that he'd be gone in a matter of hours. Because after the Passover meal, he's going to take his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed out there, and then he was betrayed and arrested by the Jewish and the Roman soldiers. They dragged him, they beat him, they spit on him, they mocked him, they put him in prison and put him on trial six times. They brought him out before Pilate who had him flogged and then had him crucified on a cross for six hours and then he dies on Friday. This is Thursday night and on Friday, Jesus is dead. Knowing that, Jesus washed feet. And he says, here's what I want for you. I've given you an example. I want you to be feet washers. Well, that's pretty amazing to me. And the reason it's amazing is because Jesus lived in a world that did not honor servants. In the first week of Jesus' ministry, John chapter 1 says this, the next day, that's actually day 2 of the ministry, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. Jesus said to Philip, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, and he said to Nathanael, Look, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Haines City? Anybody here from Haines City? Good. I usually say Mulberry, but there's always... Are anybody here from Mulberry? See, I knew that. That's why I use Haines City. Haines City was the Nazareth of the day. It was a small town, probably 100 to 200 people lived there. Jesus grew up there. It housed a Roman garrison. It was a miserable little town. There wasn't much going on there. It was the end of the earth. But you see, the point is, people didn't like where Jesus was from. Can any good thing come from there? I came from Pennsylvania. I rooted against Penn State in the football game last night. Sorry, I did. I did. But I'm in a football pool, and, and business is business. <laughs> I think Penn State won. Didn't they win? They did. Oh, well. So the deal is, you know, some people don't like me because I'm from Pennsylvania. My parents moved here in 1968, and there are still people that consider me a Yankee. And there are still people that don't use the word Yankee without its descriptive adjective. My kids all went to Florida State. I didn't even pick Florida State. I picked Oregon in my football pool. Wow. But the deal is, 
You know, people in Gainesville hate Florida State, don't they? And they, they have this thing. And people in Tallahassee, they hate this thing. Can any good thing come out of Gainesville? And people in Tallahassee and people in Gainesville, they hate, they hate Miami. Miami lost yesterday. I had South Carolina. You know, it's a terrible place. Will the last person to leave Miami remember to bring the flag and turn off the lights? See, we say that about places. Sooner or later, someone somewhere will say, where you're from isn't good enough. It's hard to live in a world like that and look around and say, what can I do to wash your feet if people don't like where you're from? Oh, you go to TBA, that's that metal weird church out on 540A. Or you go to Jenkins, or you go to Lakeland, or you go to Harrison, or you go to IB, or you go to, or you're homeschooled. Sooner or later, someone will say, that's not good enough. Jesus gets that. So you would think when Jesus goes home to Nazareth that all the people from Nazareth would hang together, right? So let's see what's happening. He goes to Nazareth, went out from there, and came to his hometown. This is months later. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. These, these are his, home, his hometown people. What were they upset about? Well, they said, is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And watch, they took offense at him. Why? Well, they didn't like his job. Anybody ever told you what you do isn't good enough? Of course they have. You know, we know that all lawyers are thieves and all politicians are corrupt and all doctors are quacks. And, and, and I know there are teachers in here. If you're a teacher, you know the old saying about teachers, those that can do and those that can't what? Teach. Yeah. And the one that always tickles me is, is, is stay-at-home mom. Oh, you don't work. My wife stayed at home with four children. And believe me, she would have loved to have worked just to get away from them. We chained her to the kitchen weeks at a time. See, sooner or later, someone will say, what, what you do isn't good enough. Oh, you just work for the county. Oh, you just drive a truck. Oh, you just. Oh, you're just a pastor. You know, you, we have three of them here. They only work one day a week. Think about that. What a gig that is. Couldn't get a real job, so they're... Wow. Hardest job in the world, I think. That's why I've never been a pastor. They also took offense at his family. We know you. You're Mary's son. By now, Joseph is probably long dead. And we know your brothers and sisters. Some people are surprised to know Jesus had at least six siblings. When Joseph dies, he leaves behind a family of widow and orphans. James, Joseph is Joseph, Jude, who wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament, Simon, the fourth child in, in, the, in the male part of the family, and he had at least two sisters. I have two sisters. Anybody know my sisters? They're a riot. My one sister, Janet Wisda, she was the principal at Scott Lake for a long time. And it always tickles me when someone says, Oh, you're, you're, Ed's, you're Ed's sister. I went, I went to school before them, and if I had done well in a class, they would say, oh, you're, you're Ed's 
sister, and if I had done bad in a class or misbehaved, which hardly ever happened, they'd say, oh, your sister, old boy. Just think about this. How many of you have in your family an older brother who thinks he's Jesus sometimes? <laughs> How many of you are the oldest in your family and you know you're Jesus? <laughs> that was a tough home. It was a tough town. It was a tough place to wash feet. And yet Jesus said, I have given you an example. Go wash feet. That's how you can thrive in 2015. Now here's the thing. Before Jesus ever washed a single toe, he was aware of some things. Let me share with you back in John 13. We've read this verse once, but I want to go back to it. It says in John 13 and verse 3, Jesus knowing some things. Knowing, number one, that the Father had given all things into his hands. Number two, that he'd come forth from where? God. And two, three, he was going back to God. Got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and washed feet. I submit to you this, that before Jesus ever washed a single foot, he was equipped to do so by the Father. When my family moved here in 1968, the space race was in full-blown high gear. You know, we got to the moon in 69. And I used to love to watch the launches, even from Lakeland, the, the first the Gemini and then the Saturn rockets. You could see them going off into space. When NASA put a man on the moon, they had to struggle with the decision, how can we put a man in this hostile place and allow him to succeed. In a sense, that's what God wants from you and me. He wants us to go out into our hostile world and succeed at washing feet. Well, maybe NASA should send large air conditioners for the sunny side of the moon or heaters for the dark side of the moon. Or maybe NASA should have sent giant bubbles of oxygen to breathe or so created some kind of gravity thing to do. But rather than change the environment, Rather than that, NASA gave each astronaut a big old backpack. You remember those big backpacks they wore? They were big, big things. And those backpacks allowed the astronauts not only to succeed in a hostile place, but I believe they enjoyed being there. Because when you see pictures of men walking on the moon, what are they doing? They're hitting golf balls, planting flags, driving the dune buggy around, picking up rocks. You know, I love the way they hop on the moon, boing, a boing. I w I'd love to do that. So instead of weighing 240, I weighed 140. See, that's what Jesus has done for us, and that's what he has on his back. He knew three things. He knew where he was from. It says Jesus knew that he'd been sent forth from God. He had a sense of who he was, his identity was secure. He wasn't from Nazareth. He wasn't from Bethlehem. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He wasn't from this place. He was from God. He also knew what he was worth. The Father had given all things into his hands, and on that last night, circumstantially, nothing could have been further from the truth. He was about to be denied by his best friends, be arrested by his enemies, be beaten by the soldiers, be crucified by, by Pilate, and be left on a cross to die. And yet God had given all things into his hands. Isn't that amazing? He knew that his worth came not from his bank account. His worth came not from his job. His worth came not from his family 
or his address or the school he went to, his worth came from what God said about him. God had given him everything. And lastly, he knew where he was going. He'd been sent forth from God, and he was going back where? To God. And when Jesus had a handle on his identity and his dignity and his security, only then did he gird himself with a towel and pour water into the bases and wash feet. Here's the cool thing. God has given you and me, who are followers of Christ, the same backpack that he gave his son. And throughout the New Testament, we read about this. In 1 John 1, we're, in, in John 1, we're told about our identity. John 1, 12 says, But as many as what? Received him. To them he gave the right to become, read this with me, children of God. Say that. Children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Believe and receive are the same synonymous word. If you have received Christ by believing in him, by believing that Jesus came for you at that first Christmas and he was your Passover sacrifice. He went to the cross as an innocent lamb and shed his blood so you don't need to suffer punishment at the hand of a wrathful God. If you believe that, if you've received that forgiveness, then God looks at you and he says, you are my son or my daughter. Think about that for a minute. If you know Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. And when you are a child of the king, it's so much easier to look around and say, who has dirty feet that I can help wash? But not only does God give us a new identity, God gives us, secondly, a dignity that comes from him. We live in a world that's all external. What Xbox did you get? What iPod or phone do you have? What car are you driving? What house do you live in? What school do you go to? What's your bank account? What's your net worth? What all the external stuff is how we're judged by the world. God says, no, 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 your, your self-worth comes from what I say about you. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every blessing that God gave to Jesus, God has given to you and to me. We are equipped the way Jesus was equipped to look at people who have dirty feet and say, what can I do to help? It starts at home. How do I serve my family? It goes to work. How do I serve the people I work with? It goes to my neighborhood. How do I, how do I make my neighborhood successful? It goes, and I believe this is the most important one, it goes to people that we know that don't know Jesus yet. How are they going to come to know Jesus if we don't show them Jesus' love? That's why I love the emphasis in this church on being the hands and feet of Jesus we don't just show Jesus love to love them. We show the love so that we get to share Jesus with them. And every spiritual blessing that God gave to his son, he has given to you and to me. And now, now listen, I don't have a verse for this. This is the Bible according to Ed. This is my opinion, but I think it's true. If you had been the only person ever to have been born on this planet, I believe God loves you so much that he would have sent Jesus to die for only you. I have four sons. I wouldn't give any of them to die for any of you. But God had one perfect son, and he said, I'll let him go to the cross for you. You are worth the sacrifice of God's son. You are equipped to wash feet. You have a new identity in Christ. You have a new worth in Christ. 
And lastly, you have a security like no other in Christ. In the book of Romans, Paul asks an incredibly important question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? If I know Christ, is there anything that can cause that to stop? Can I walk away from him? Will he walk away from me? And so Paul begins to list the possibilities. How about tribulation? If you had some of that last year, you'll probably have some more this year. Distress. Have you had any distress this year? I got the iPhone 5 instead of 6. Some of you are in that distress. Persecution. Some of you have been genuinely persecuted, but none of us to the extent of our Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq at the hands of the ISIS terrorists. What about famine? You know, I think we're only uh, a world cataclysmic event away from needing food in a way that you and I would never understand. Or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Is there any of those can separate me from, from Jesus? And then at the end of that passage, Paul answers his own question. I am convinced, says Paul, that neither death nor life. See, if I'm not here next Christmas, it's okay. I'm not separated from Jesus. Just be kind with the ashes. And if my life stinks next year, it's okay because I'm still with Jesus. Nor angels, nor principalities. You know, in the spiritual realm, I'm okay. Jesus will never leave me. Nor things present, nor things to come. What's going on today? What's going on tomorrow? Nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And I love it here. He just got tired of writing, so he wrote, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How long will you be with Christ forever and forever and forever? I have in my backpack a new identity and a new dignity and a security that lasts forever. And now I can thrive in 2015 by asking the question, what can I do to serve people until Jesus comes back again? Because the great news is that Jesus is coming back again. Wouldn't it be great if it was before next Christmas? But you know, between now and the time he comes back, there are people we need to love that don't know him yet. Because once he comes back, they won't get another chance. But I, as I study the scriptures, I'm sure as I can be, that just as sure as I, I remember that Christ came into that little manger 2,000 years ago, he's coming back again. But it'll be a different coming. You see, God has seen the last act of your life, and you win. I was watching Duke play Arizona State yesterday. I hate Duke. They're kind of like Kentucky basketball. They think they invented it. Just kidding, Shives. But Duke hadn't won a bowl game in 21 years, and I picked Arizona State. And the game is going back and forth and back and forth, and I had to work on my message so I left the football game with the, with, the, with the outcome in doubt, and Duke is driving, for, and I went and I finished my message, and I came out just figuring I'd lost the game in my, in my pool. This is not for money. I mean, I do it with a bunch of pagan friends. There's a little money. But it's a preference pool. And I just do it to have something to talk about with my, with my pagan sports buddies. And as I came out, I saw the highlight of the last play of the Duke game. Arizona State intercepted a pass inside the 10, and my team won. Now, I told you that so I can tell you this. I got up this morning early, and I'm just, you know, eating my oatmeal and watching Sports Center. When you get old, kids, that's what you have, oatmeal. Throw a little blueberries and nuts for variety. It's very healthy. But none of this sugary stuff. 
So I'm eating my oatmeal and I'm, and I'm watching sports there. They're going to do the highlights of the Duke-Arizona State game. And you know, not once was I worried about the outcome. Because I'd already known the outcome. It had been told me the day before. Here's the deal. I know the outcome of the last act of my life. And so do you. If you belong to Jesus, God has seen the last act of your life. And you win. You're Arizona State. You can relax. Because Jesus is coming again. And we win. In the first Christmas, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, Luke 2. But when Jesus comes back, the book of Revelation says, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. He's not the little Lord Jesus, that crying he makes. He's the powerful king come to conquer and judge that which is his. At the first Christmas, Jesus' birth was concealed. In fact, Two years after the birth, and by the way, the wise men did not show up at the manger. They showed up at a house when Jesus was two. And before they got to the house, they went to the palace because they didn't know where Jesus was born. They said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. When Jesus comes again, and it could be today, it says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. I long for that. That's the last act in your life and my life. That's the beginning of the last act. When Jesus came that first Christmas, he was laid in a humble manger, an animal feeding trough. When he comes again, you know what? He's not laying down. He is heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. My king is coming, riding a white horse, wearing a royal robe, dipped in blood. And in the first coming, the inn was closed. There was no room for them in the inn. But when Jesus comes back, heaven is open. Revelation 19, I saw heaven opened. Everyone will see the second Christmas. The first Christmas, Jesus came as the Passover lamb. He is the epitome of humility. Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality of God a thing to be grasped onto. But in his second coming... His voice is that of authority. His feet were like burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of many rushing waters. We have a king riding a white horse, wearing a royal robe with a voice that you will hear all over the planet. In his first coming, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In his second coming, he's called the Lion of Judah. Stop! One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the Lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has overcome. My King is coming like a lion. Last, he comes in his first Christmas as the Savior of the world, the Passover Lamb, to die for us. And we have the blessings of the blood shed by Christ as we enter into that protection. If you don't know Jesus today as Savior, that's why we're here. We want you to know that Jesus died for you. And just as the Jews in the Old Testament had to enter into the protection by going into the house, you have to step through the door of faith and believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sufficient payment for your sin. Ah, but once you do that, we wait and our heart longs for the time that Jesus will come as Lord. And that's mentioned in the first Christmas, but he's coming not only as 
the Savior, but he's Christ the Lord, who will come when heaven opens, when there's a loud voice, wearing a white horse, wearing a royal robe, with the voice that is the sound of many waters, to rule and to judge and to set up his kingdom on earth. That is the last act of your life and my life. I have read the book. I have looked at the last chapter, and we win. And therefore, we are left behind by God as his ambassadors, equipped with an identity and a dignity and a security to go and wash the feet of others until Jesus comes back again. Are you with me? Would you pray with me as the band comes? Father, we are reminded one of the great passages in the Old Testament that we read at Christmas talks about a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and we're thankful that we just celebrated that, but we look to the rest of the, of the verse which says the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, Father, we long with the creation for the second Christmas for you to come and establish your kingdom on the earth as you have promised. But in the meantime, we pray that you would find us faithful men and women, boys and girls who love you, and who are equipped to wash feet with a new identity, a new dignity, and a security that comes from you. Help us be known, Father, as a people who wash the feet of others until Jesus comes again. Amen. Amen.